Hey everyone, in this week's episode, we're gonna be re-airing one of our top episodes of last year with the lovely Sally Krawcheck, the founder of Elevist and someone who is a huge inspiration to me. We have so many incredible new listeners of the podcast, so you may have missed this one. And before we go into today's episode, I also wanted to share a bit more about my new company, Bia. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth, and dreaming of always building my empire. With all of this stress came really debilitating periods from bloating, acne, cramping, extreme breast tenderness, and really unpredictable moods. I remember complaining to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month, and that adds up to three months in a year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. And that's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who kept recommending this concept called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your body's ability to balance its hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. And then I noticed seed cycling is kind of actually hard to do. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amount with the right support. And it's called Bia and I'm so excited to bring it to you. It's been a complete game changer and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter the most like this podcast and and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, check out our free guide with all the top tips to tackling hormonal imbalances at beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free. We also included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're gonna love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. And let's jump into this week's episode. We've also been socialized that we're supposed to get A's, we're supposed to be perfect, we're supposed to be effortless, right? All that's supposed to just sort of beautifully happen. And I think it's important that we not only talk about the issues, but that we talk about the failures. Because of how life is in the deck stack, we're all going to fail and you just got to get back up and not let it bother you. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Sally Krawcheck, to our show today. Sally is the CEO and co-founder of Elevest, an investment platform working to help close a gender pay gap by redefining investing for women. Sally's mission is to help women reach their financial and professional goals, or as she says, to get more money in the hands of women. She's definitely on her way as Elevest recently announced that they have a billion dollars under management. Before launching Elevest in 2016, Sally was one of the highest ranked women ever to have worked on Wall Street. She was a CEO of Merrill Lynch, Smith Barney, US Trust, Citi's Private Bank, and Sanford Bernstein. She was also the CFO of Citigroup. 
Prior to that, Sally was a top-ranked research analyst covering the securities industry. Sally is widely recognized as one of the most influential women in business. She's been recognized by Inc. as a top female founder. She's also been called the last honest analyst by Fortune magazine and was named the seventh most powerful woman in the world by Forbes. Welcome to the show, Sally. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. And before we jump in, I just want to acknowledge you. I mentioned this before the interview, but you're a big role model for me. And I believe you've really paid the way for women in banking and now entrepreneurship. So it's an honor to have you on. And I'm so excited for our listeners to learn more about you today. Thank you. That's so kind of you. Thank you. Of course. Well, on the podcast, we always love to start with the beginning. I know you grew up in a small town, Charleston, South Carolina, and not only had a strong work ethic, which ran in your family, but also as a young child, you always had big dreams. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear more about your childhood and what your life was like growing up. So different. I was born in the 60s, grew up in the 70s and the 80s in the South. So it just was different. There were cotillions, there were debutantes. It was a different type of quieter lifestyle. But I always was full of energy, wanted to go places, didn't quite know what place I wanted to go, but had a moment in high school when my high school guidance counselor pulled me aside and said, you can go places, you can do things, but you're running in circles. Is your life goal really to date the quarterback? I was like, it sort of is, but let me think about other life goals. And so from that time decided, okay, I'm going to get to New York. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I want to see if I can make it in New York from Charleston. Yeah. And it's interesting because like you mentioned, you know, growing up in the South on the face of it, everything sounds perfect, right? You're going to cotillions, you're looking Mm -hmm. to date the quarterback, but I know you actually, I wasn't going to any cotillions. (laughs) Let's be perfectly clear. I was being left out of the cotillions and trying to date the quarterback. Let's be perfectly clear. Yeah, and that's exactly what I want to talk about because you've been very open how it was a little difficult for you and how it really prepped you for Wall Street. So I'd kind of love to learn more about your education and what school is like because I know it wasn't easy for you. Horrible. I was horribly bullied in Charleston as a smart kid who got A's, who had the glasses, the braces. And in my mind, I have corrected shoes, chosen second to last for all the teams There wasn't a big Jewish community there, but to be Jewish in that society where there was some anti-Semitism, you know, I was bullied. I ate lunch by myself every day. And so I love to joke, even though it's not a joke, that there was nothing they could do to me on Wall Street that was worse than seventh grade. It was just this sense of running with concrete on your shoes that, you know, how do you fit in? How do you be happy? How do you be part of it? And I learned just one foot in front of the other and, and get to the other side. And do you think now reflecting back on your upbringing, do you think that impacted your confidence or your wanting to fit in? Because clearly you're such a powerhouse of a woman. You know, how do you think it's impacted you both positively or even negatively looking back now? You know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. I think we've all survived 100% of everything that's happened to us. And so it leads me to have an insecurity, which sort of ignites me and motivates me. When you aren't liked and you can't figure out what to do to be liked, of course, it leaves you with an insecurity, but one that then I have always translated into into work. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. You had all these dreams, you wanted to do big things, and your goal was to get out of the South and go to New York. So I know you graduated UNC. My sister is a Tar Heel too, so I'm a big fan. Yeah. And you studied journalism and you actually had dreams of being a journalist and a business reporter. So I'm curious, how did you fall into working at Solomon Brothers, which I know in the 80s was a very intense and toxic culture. So how did you end up in investment banking when you initially wanted to be a reporter? Well, because when I started to interview for journalism roles and they would pay $13,000 a year, and then my friends were interviewing for these Wall Street roles who were paying $32,000 a year. And I was like, you know what? This is not a hard decision. I didn't come from money. So whatever I made was what I had. And so I convinced myself, I'll go to Wall Street for a couple of years. It's going to make a lot of sense because then I can become a business journalist later on more go into the business of journalism. And that was the plan. You know, I went to Wall Street, Solomon Brothers. It was awful. It was tough. It was worse than anything you read about. Managed to get myself through that. Went to Columbia Business School to switch out, you know, had a Time Magazine summer internship, but then they didn't offer me the ongoing job. I got an offer to go to Disney coming out of business school, which was my absolute dream job. It was supposed to be in New York. It was in LA instead. I was married at the time. And so I had to turn down that job because my husband didn't want to move. Really, really, really wish he told me that he was having an affair with a friend of mine at that time. So that would have been sort of full information on which I could have made my decision. But unfortunately, I only found that out months later when I sort of went back to Wall Street. And so all of it, it was my 20s felt like this big waste of trying to get into journalism, trying to Wall Street, trying to, and then it all sort of pulled itself together when I was literally a month away from being 30, when I thought, wait, 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 wait. I love the research. I love the writing. I love the analytics. I love the modeling. I don't love the deals. I want something that's more of an individual contributor at this stage of my life than working on big teams. And boom, it sort of hit me. As I love to say, as happens to so many young women at that age, I want to be an equity research analyst. But it did for me pull a bunch of things that I love together. Yeah. And going back a little bit, I was in investment banking for a few years. You were in that space way longer than me. It's incredibly tough, right? Especially the years you were in there was incredibly male dominated. As someone who in your 20s, we're grinding to do well, figure things out. You weren't getting the jobs you wanted. And also, I believe you were pregnant with your first child right at the time. Yeah. So what was that whole experience like for you? Because I can't even imagine how much pressure you had on yourself to maybe even figure it out before your, I believe your daughter came into this world. Oh, it was horrible. I felt like such a failure. Here I was, I'd gotten A's at school. I'd gotten out of Charleston went to New York. I got A's at business school, but I just was in the wrong place. And I hated every day that I went to work. And then when I took some time off, I hated myself for taking time off. And I felt like University of North Carolina gave me a full scholarship to go there. And I felt like I had let them down. I let my parents down. And I'm almost 30 and I have this whole life ahead of me. And I'm going to hate my job for the rest of my life. And I didn't want to be a stay-at-home mom. My mother is and wished she'd been someplace else for many of those years. So I said that I don't want to do that. And I don't want to do this. It was dark. I gotta tell you, it was pretty dark there for a while. Yeah, I'm sure. And I know being in that position, just working, you don't even have time to think about what you want to do. You kind of forget about your own interests because you're just grinding many hours of the day. So it's tough to kind of step back and reflect about what you want to do, right? It's impossible. So what I did 
was I carved out time. That's and cool. knowing I wasn't happy, I said, okay, I'm going to have two times of the day when I'm going to really try to think deeply. First is going to be in the morning. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to start writing. What do I want my life to be? What do I want it to look like? What do I love? And then I'm going to do it again at night over a glass of wine. The gist of both is to get sort of those defenses down and really think about not what is expected of me, but what I love doing. And so, I mean, and it was a day it came together like kaboom. And as soon as I knew, because I thought really deeply about it, then I'm like, oh, this is the answer. Now I just need to go out and convince somebody to give me a job. There's just like no doubt in my mind, this is the absolute answer to what I want to do. And by the way, once I got the job, now everybody turned me down. Everybody, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch and Yamaichi and Raymond James and you name Bank of America and Smith Barney and Solomon Brothers. I love to joke, although it's not a joke, it's true. The director of research at Smith Barney turned me down and was polite enough to call me and tell me why. He said, because we think you won't work very hard because we found out you have a baby at home. So we don't think you'll work very hard. And I'm like, all right. And years later, I fired him when he worked for me because he didn't work very hard. Oh my goodness. That came full circle. I loved it. Loved it. Yeah. I'm sure it's very satisfying. You know, there's two things that really stand out. And I think a lot of women right now, if they're confused about what their next step is, I know I've definitely been there many times, just doing the process you did, getting quiet, right? Putting your thoughts on paper because you will never find that right next step for you. That's really genuine to yourself. If you don't take the time, because I would say your career really took off once you got that job at Sanford and Bernstein, right? As an equity research analyst, I know you eventually convinced someone, but that was a very powerful move for you in your career. But when you're doing things you're good to great at and that you love with good people Mm. around you, you know, magical things happen. And so even though I was covering life insurance as a research analyst, you're like, how is that any fun? I loved it. I loved it because, because it wasn't covered by everybody. And so You had the ability to have some real insights to help clients because it wasn't the most competitive space out there. But I put out my first piece of research that caught notice on Wall Street literally two months after I got there. I always say people are still talking about, but every once in a while, someone's like, remember that piece? I'm like, yeah. Yeah, you're on the face of Fortune magazine, right? Like this young analyst. I was. I was later on the cover of Fortune magazine as the last honest analyst because I went in there and everybody was positive at the time. We were going up to Y2, you know, sort of year 2000, the internet bubble, and everybody was positive. And I was like, no, no, absolutely not. And nobody told me those were the rules. You're supposed to be positive. So I sort of went my own way. And when I became director of research and I took us out of conflicted adjacent businesses and was right, then Wall Street was getting pretty hammered. And I was named the last honest analyst which was still to me is surreal that I was on the cover of Fortune magazine. Yeah. I mean, you were what, early 30s at the time, quite young too, right? Quite young. Wow. And you know, going back to just how it was so tough for you to even get that job in the first place, and then you landed this job and then you made big bets. So you had a lot of confidence to make these swings. How did you not make other people rejecting you? How did you not internalize that as a young analyst hungry to get this job, knowing this was the right fit for you. How did you kind of push through those times? You know, I drank. (laughs) You just did. You pushed through. I just did. I think it's that insecurity again, where, yeah, okay, people are are rejecting me. I've been, you know, back to seventh grade. This is familiar territory. But I always had a growth mindset. 
So I never said they're rejecting me and it's because I can't do this. It's like they're rejecting me for they don't think I'll work hard enough, right? Or with a baby, they would have, or they think this guy who has a math degree is going to be better. But the important thing is I never, I don't want to say question myself, but I never didn't believe that I couldn't do the job, if that made sense. Just get me in there. I may not have an advanced degree in economics, but I will get this figured out. And so recognizing you absolutely cannot be successful if you don't also fail. It just doesn't happen. So these are just different stepping stones till eventual success. Yeah. And I think one thing that also stands out in your life, being in investment banking, being in a tough environment, you see what you're capable of. So it kind of gives you a little bit more confidence in yourself to push through those naysayers, which you will continue to hit as you get your career. I still got them. I still got them. But you know, one thing I would say, so I get so many questions about being the only woman and back then and the only woman and what it was like being the only one. They're definitely horror stories. I mean, there are, they're just stories. I still think back and I just cringe with embarrassment and loathing at some of these people. However, when people say, did being a woman on wall street help you or hurt you? The answer is definitely yes. I can go for a long time with a hurt, but look, When I was a research analyst and I moved on from covering life insurance to covering Wall Street itself, and that was a more competitive field, it's me competing against 19 men with brown hair. And so you couldn't forget me. And if my research was good or great, like it's her. What's her name? What's her name? It's the one woman. It's her as opposed to it's a fella. He's got brown hair. He wears a tie, his glasses. People are like, you're not doing anything for me. And then even being on the cover of Fortune magazine, in order to get there, I had to have a contrarian strategy on something big that paid off for sure. But it did not, I just know it didn't hurt. I was a woman. If I'd been another white guy, they'd have been like, okay, maybe, but there was something about the whole thing, right? So it's been both. And again, I can go into the negatives when once my profile got high, there's something in our society where that feels like it goes against the natural order of things. And you know, you get the sit down and be quiet lady. And it's interesting because do you think from your perspective that women get more of that when they're in the press versus men? Oh, it's not my perspective. It's absolutely true. The research shows it. The research tells us that when men are seen to be looking for power or attention, we're like, that's what they do. And when women are seen to be looking for power and attention, the emotion they evoke in men and women is contempt and disgust. Oh, wow. Contempt and disgust. And you can remember, I mean, we can go back to different situations, but I just remember Hillary Clinton being Secretary of State and everybody loved her. Then she runs for president, everybody hates her. You know, they didn't mind her being, you know, but it's the view that she seemed to be looking for it. And I remember a boss of mine who fired me when I was at Bank of America, our results were really, really good. And we got to my business review, my performance review, and we were beating plan and we were gaining share and we were whatever. And he said to me, I've got two pieces of feedback for you. I'm like, okay, you know, here I am with the pen. You're working too hard and you're making your peers feel bad. And I'm like, that is feedback I've never gotten before. And the second was your profile is too high. And I said, well, it's only because the business is doing well. And he said, you need to stop giving interviews. And I said, I've given two interviews since whatever, which your office asked me to give. And I remember he said to me, it's your problem, figure it out. You heard this with Meghan Markle. I'm no Meghan Markle, okay? 
But when she did her interview with Oprah, I'm listening and the family told her, get your profile down. And she's like, I haven't left the, in her oh. case, the palace, in my case, but, you know, my grimy little office. But there's something about it when women get attention that can drive the establishment over the edge. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that that brings up, I believe you were actually publicly fired twice as a CEO. Oh, thanks for bringing that up. Really appreciate you bringing that up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because you're killing it now. It's clearly their fault for letting you go, which I'm glad they did because you wouldn't be where you are today. But, you know, having two public firings, I know there's one thing that I would love to talk about. It was, I believe when you were the CEO of Merrill, there are some learnings that you wish you had in writing. I would love for you to kind of talk through what you wish you did before jumping into that job, because I think it's applicable to any woman in their position today. Yeah. So look, so I was fired twice. The first time was when I was running Smith Barney, the crisis of 0809. We had a team there had missile products. They were supposed to be low risk. They were high risk. They were supposed to go down eight cents in the dollar in a bad market. They went down a hundred cents. And I said, we should partially reimburse clients. The boss did not agree. It went to the board. I won the battle, but he fired me. So I guess the only lesson to be learned is if you take your boss on at the board, the CEO, you get fired just is what it is. But that was sort of ethically important to me. The second one was weirder, was just a weirder set of circumstances. So I was brought in by the former head of Bank of America after they bought Merrill, the attrition, the culture was, the cultures were clashing. You know, gee, I heard you turn around Smith Barney, can you turn around Merrill, put me in coach for sure. The attrition rate was 54%. People were leaving. You know, it was just a disaster. I said, okay, put me in. And when I asked for a written contract, I was told we can't do that because of the regulators. And I'm like, that that sounds maybe could, yeah, okay, fine. I mean, these guys aren't going to lie to me. So he said, we'll have a handshake. And I said, well, okay, handshake on how much I was going to make. I remember saying to the head of HR, but what would make you not pay? You know, what would you not pay this? And she was like, look, we've been in a walk in the woods together. I think that meant we'd been through a lot together. And you can trust us. So I said, okay, got it. And I got there. And the guy who brought me in, who said he'd be there for two years, left after two months. And at the end of the first year, when it came time to get paid, they did not pay me what our agreement was. And when I said, wait, what about the walk in the park? And he said, nope, that was the former team. There's no written contract. So I said, okay, okay, most respectful interpretation. Let's move on. And so a year goes by nobody's paid a bonus the next year because the company lost money fair enough. Another year goes by, we're two years into it. The business is completely turned around. The attrition rate was 54% is single digit percent. We're gaining share, we're growing. And the day after Labor Day, they walked into my office and said, thank you for turning the company around. I'm like, yep, yep, yep. And they said, and now we'll invite you to leave. And we're going to put in this guy who's a lovely man, but in his 60s, and had never run a wealth management business before. But they said, you're not a culture fit, probably because my profile was too high and we need a culture fit, which is always how you get rid of diversity, right? It's that they don't fit in with the culture. And by the way, we never had a signed contract. So don't let the door hit you in the, you know what, on the way out. So that was important. The other important learning is I just didn't have anybody in that boardroom fighting for me. After the guy who hired me left, we hadn't really let me meet a whole bunch of other investors and members of the team, you know, I was just alone. 
I know after leaving B of A, it's really tough to get those senior executive banking positions. There are very few to come by. And you mentioned in a previous interview that so much of your identity was tied to your career, clearly that position. So how did you pick yourself up again? And what did you do at the time? Well, I mean, after the second time and, you know, both times you, you know, happily, I was able to deliver business results. So I took some comfort from, it wasn't front page of the Wall Street Journal, this woman sucks at her job, right? It was ethical stand, reorg, all this stuff, but it certainly hurt. And as you noted, there were these periods, you'd go to a cocktail party and you'd introduce yourself and I didn't know what to say. I'm Sally Krawcheck. I'm Sally Krawcheck, right? I mean, just, I was so used to comma and I, which is totally my fault that I let my view of myself sort of get wrapped up in my job. And by the way, I used to tell myself, my view of myself is not wrapped up in my job, but it absolutely was. Now I did have a chance, you know, what actually did happen is I did get quite a few offers to go to big companies again. And they were all the same. Every one of them, just like when I was brought in Smith, Barney, Merrill was, we got this broken business. Uh, We want you, we think you can turn it around. If you do, no guarantees, you'll be CEO, but no written guarantees. And I'm like, do you guys pass the script around for me? Bring her in to do the dirty work. And then afterwards, when it gets easy, tell her we're going to put a white guy back in charge. Like, really? And so I'm like, you know what? I don't think I'm going to do that again. And so I thought I was sort of off. I'll do some boards and I'll advise some people. And then I sort of had this really important insight over the space of a few days that while we spend so much time talking about the gender pay gap, there's a gender wealth gap. So we bring in 82 cents for every dollar a white man has. We keep only 32 cents, a penny for black women, a penny for brown women. And the difference between those are several things that make up that difference. But a couple are, we don't invest as much as men do, costing us hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more over our lives. And we have more debt and we have higher interest rate debt. And so as I'm saying, well, maybe the big companies aren't the right thing for me. Then I said, whoa, maybe I can take my experience and build an investing firm, now a financial company for women from the ground up. And maybe the industry tells me women are risk averse. They're not good at investing. They're not good at math. Maybe all that's true. Or maybe this business that is so male, so macho, so alpha actually was built for men and that we could build something that will engage women with their money. Sure. And I know when this idea came to mind, you didn't necessarily think it would be you to start the company from scratch. I believe you met with a few larger banks, their CEOs to pitch the idea. So I'd love to kind of hear that transition for you when the idea first came to mind. So the idea was there and it just was like being struck by lightning in a good way where it's like, this is important and no one's doing this huge market. It's a huge opportunity. Money is women's number one source of stress, taking action, beginning to save more, beginning to invest more, number one driver of confidence in our future. Kapow, right? Kapow. Okay. Well, I'm not a startup CEO. So let me go to a few of the big banks and I know them. And maybe they'll forget that they like to fire me every few years, but I'll (laughs) go and I'll talk and we'll do like a joint venture right? We do joint venture. And so I went and one of the CEOs, who's a pretty good friend of mine, been one of the younger ones, we had breakfast one day and I'm going through this, you know, this pay gap and opportunity. And, and I said, and look, 80% of women die single, 90% of them manage their money on their own at some point in their lives. I mean, even if they don't want to manage their money, they have to, there's such a opportunity and blah, 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 blah. 
And he sits there and he sort of, hmm, hmm. And then he looks off into the distance in this sort of very thoughtful CEO way. And he turns back to me and says, but Sally, don't their husbands manage their money for them? And my response, like, I mean, I know you listened, but you didn't hear. And your life experience is not going to allow you to hear. And so if I try to do this at a big place, we're going to fail. I actually have a lower risk by going out and doing it to Novo. But by the way, I got to tell you, Desmond, every once in a while, I was like, is this really a good idea? Because I know the gender wealth gap, but then I start to think an investing platform, a finance platform for women, and it starts to feel silly or junior varsity, or do we really need it? And then I go off it for a while because I was like, it just doesn't feel right. And I'm like, that's exactly why it is right. Because coming from the traditional industry, thinking what a dumb idea, when the opportunity is staring you right in your face, you got to go do this. And it's powerful that you said, because I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of our listeners are wanting to be entrepreneurs or starting something new. You can sometimes second guess what your big idea was, right? You were so excited and then you start questioning yourself. But I think that's a really interesting point you made in terms of it just shows that this is why you need to do it. You need to normalize, right? Investing with women, more women need to put money to work. And it's also interesting because I've interviewed now 50 women on this podcast. A lot of the women have been in divorces where they said, I don't know why I wasn't even thinking about our money. And they were largely mm-hmm. the breadwinners. So of course, so many learnings, even from successful women, not being oh. mindful of where their money is, which is shocking. Well, we've been socialized that it's, he does that. And we do the birthday parties, right? Even Cheryl yeah. Sandberg, when she wrote lean in was like, Dave and I have split the work. He does the money. And I do the birthday parties. I almost fell off the sofa. You almost fall asleep, but that's where we've been socialized that men are better at it. It's their purview. We'll do this other thing. You can't do everything. But, you know, if we're the ones who are left at the end and there's not enough money, it falls on us. So, yeah, but look, I encourage women who want to torture themselves to start businesses because it's hard. It's really hard, but it's fulfilling. You know, I was about standing in one of these lines. I think it was one of the lines to vote, early vote, and had a woman stand behind me. And she, you had Elevast, she saw my bag and she said, Y'all are changing my life. You're changing my life. That's all there is to it. Go back and tell everybody. So if you can find something that you enjoy doing, you're good at, you've got sort of a unique point of view and can change lives for the better, there's nothing like it. But the stress of the responsibility is pretty significant. I'm sure. And would you say, you know, clearly you've been CEOs of massive institutions. Would you say the stress is more or less or different? Much harder. It's much harder. It is so much harder. Large institutions, you've got people around you. So when I went through the 07, 08 financial crisis, I had people around me who'd been through other crises before who we could compare and contrast. There'd be seven of us get together and let's talk through this. As a startup, it's lonely. And no one's been through a pandemic before. And what was actually worse about this one is that I do have a really strong network of female startup CEOs, but nobody was reaching out to anybody because everybody was in their own moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I started catching up with people recently, and you realize this one had to lay off 80% of her company while she had COVID. You know, this one had to make a decision, lay off versus not while she had COVID. And so it was lonely. It was lonely. None of us have been through anything like that. People's boards were freaking out. People's investors were freaking out. Other venture capitalists were freaking out, making your venture capitalists freak out. And you're trying to make company-defining decisions 
while on the rock and roller coaster. And you're like, am I upside or down? Am I vomiting at this moment or not? I can't tell. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you still have to stand up as a leader in front of your team and still inspire. So that's a whole nother element in addition to what you're dealing with as the founder, right? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. And with startups, you have some number of young people, all companies you do, but with startups particularly, and this is their first rodeo. And so there was a lot, particularly because I've been in the industry of how is this different? Is this bad? Is it what? But getting them through it, I just found just being as candid as possible, just here's how much money we have in the bank. Here's our revenues. Here's what we're trying to do. If we do it, here's where we will be. If we do that, then we will be able to. And was just as open as possible be. And look, a lot of people laid people off. We cut salaries for a period of time. And I laid out with them, this is why we want to keep the team together. These are how the numbers work out. This is why. And hey, when you're CEO and I help you raise venture money, you may make a very different decision and that's okay. But this is the information I have and this is the decision I made. And I think people really appreciated it. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've heard that from a few of the other women founders on our podcast, just like how important it is to be honest with your team. Or also if there's an F up in the company to be honest with your clients, I've heard that as well. So that seems very powerful. So going back a little bit, right, you met with different people to get this idea off the ground much later in your life, you're becoming a first time entrepreneur. Was that intimidating for you? I know you also have a co-founder. So how did you think about you being the one that gets this idea off the ground as someone who has previously just been in banking. Yeah. Well, I think a few different ways, you know, I think you think of me as being a big company gal, but I was a research analyst before, which was me and half an assistant and nothing happened if I didn't make it happen. So I didn't feel this. And I loved that work. So I never felt like I don't want to get my hands straight. In fact, I still write my own article each week in our newsletter. You know, I sit down every Sunday afternoon and write it. So I've never been like, I don't do this kind of work. Like I do all of the work. I definitely needed a co-founder to get started because I got to be honest with you. I wouldn't, I mean, I knew exactly chief investment officer, got it, right? Got it. But CTO, I never could have done that then. And even product manager, wait a second, what does a tech project manager do? Because I didn't have direct experience with that. So that was useful. And we got together a really terrific team But it's interesting because it's hard in every way. You have to come up with the idea. That's hard. You have to pull together the team. You need to raise money. You can't raise money if you don't have a team. You can't get a team if you haven't raised money, right? All of that can work out tremendously well, but you got one wrong person on the job, right? You got the wrong product manager early on. That's a fatal mistake. Or you've got the right people and you just aren't interpreting the research the right way. Or maybe the problem's not solvable. Or where we could have faltered is we really didn't realize how badly we needed a community. Everybody else just had to build a digital advisor. And then they're like, hey, people who are at Fidelity, come to us. We are cheaper and better and more sophisticated. For women, it was change your behavior. Your money's in cash bring it to us. You could lose everything. You can't talk to anybody. We don't have a track record. You've been told you're bad with money. You've been told for women is inferior, right? And by the way, there was no place to go find them. You're trying to find the guys who invest, go to CNBC. When I go on CNBC, we get a ton of traffic on our site and nobody opens a new account, not one single person. Wow. So they're not there. 
And so we actually, without really understanding it, had to start the marketing and the community building way before we got the product out so that you had sort of a group of folks with the same interest around money who were beginning to trust you. So that was hard. And then finally, the thing nobody friggin' tells you is even when it's great, it's hard. My co-founder is no longer with us. A few of our members of the founding team, we've had to invite to leave along the way because they're baby mix startups. Yeah. <laughs> you get to that toddler up. startup and it's somebody else. And the teenager startup is somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's definitely quite the journey. And I'm sure, you know, people always say being a founder, you're also going through your own personal growth as well, because it's just in tandem, right? Because you're dealing with so many new situations. One thing I do want to talk about, well, there's so much I want to unpack there, but one of the layers I'd love to get your perspective on is just fundraising as a whole, right? Clearly, yeah. We could talk for hours on that topic, but I'd love to hear from your experience. What was that like in the early days before you got the first few checks? Because I know that's honestly the hardest part. So what was your experience like? Mine flipped because I have been around for a while and know a lot of folks. The first, the seed round was like falling off a log. I know rich people. And so I went to a number of folks who I'd worked with, either the same company or different companies whose companies I admired. And they were in the industry. So the former president of First Boston, Morningstar, the former co-CIO of PIMCO. And so went to these folks and said, look, here's the problem and opportunity. I don't know if I can figure this out. And all of them are like, yes, because we're in the industry. We know women don't, we know it's a huge market. We know nobody's cracked the code. We don't know if you can do it, but we know you'll work yourself into your grave trying to. So there you go. So that wasn't because I'm in different circumstances for some of your readers, the tough one was the next round where you sort of got the prototypes, you've got some early positives, you've got a few, you're in beta, the product is working, people are coming through. And then when I went out to the traditional venture capitalist, forget it in every way, right? And I don't blame them. So first of all, they invest based on pattern recognition. So are you a Stanford graduate in a hoodie, uh, check, right? Nobody out there saying, you know who I want to invest in? I want to invest in a woman who's in her 50s, who's had success at big, global, complex organizations, managing big person. Yes, that's what we want. Who has no tech background? Nobody said that ever. And so I could get the meetings, but you could just feel the no before you came through the door. So I ended up, again, this is where my privilege comes through, I ended up saying, all right, rather than me trying to find people with money and convince them, you know, find people who invest in venture and convince them that this is an opportunity that we can solve. Why don't I find people who believe in the equality of women, who want to help women advance, who want to help women move forward and convince them to make an investment, right? So rather than convince someone about the big thesis, just agree on the thesis and have them invest the money. So we were one of the very first direct investments Melinda Gates' office made, Penny Pritzker, the former Secretary of Commerce, a number of the always venture capitalists out in Silicon Valley, Venus Williams. You know, we got together a really good group of women and our allies, which wasn't easy, but was easier than, you know, knocking on the next Sand Hill Road door. Yeah. And how long was that entire process for you? Like my whole life. I don't know. It's like, it never stops. It's still going on. It's horrible. Now you've raised what over 90 million, I believe around there. But yeah, no, it is interesting because we've heard and it's like a perpetual cycle, right? It's all the time. 
until you're profitable, it's just on my mind all the time, how much runway we've got, what we need to get there, who I'm keeping in touch with. It's not fun. Looking back at just you going through that whole experience, is there anything that you wish you did differently or that you wish you knew before getting into the whole venture capital world? Yeah. I mean, everything, right? You know, it's not so much, I wish I didn't take money from venture capitalists because the venture capitalists we have are incredibly useful. I've learned a ton from. So the value is definitely there. You know, I just wish we could go back in time and not make the mistakes we made. You just look at the times you went down the rabbit hole and you're like, that was three months. I mean, what I would do for that three months and I mean, what else we could have done if only we'd known it wasn't going to work or it wasn't, it was suboptimal and people, oh, I wish we had invited XYZ to leave three months earlier. Mm. Oh, the time we spent on that. So it's things like that. It's not mega, mega things. Sure. No, that definitely makes sense. And one thing I do want to talk about is when you came into this world of entrepreneurship, I know you talk a lot about the power of networking and how women don't do a good enough job of that. So I, mm. I'm very passionate about networking. Every job, every opportunity came from me meeting someone who happened to have helped me. So I'd love to hear your perspective on why women need to be better at networking and how it's impacted your life. So what I will say is we do a much better job of it in the startup and venture world than we do on the East Coast, Wall Street, corporate world. And I think what it comes down to is that on the East Coast, in traditional industries, we were socialized that we were competing against each other within the company. And so if there was going to be one senior vice president who's a woman getting real friendly with the three others up for it, you want to be spending time with the guys who were making the decisions. And then even, you know, when I was in senior roles on Wall Street, I never knew my women equivalents at other firms. And part of, again, we were competing. You know, everybody's like, oh, you must know the woman who runs wealth management at JP Morgan for years. I'm like, nope. I mean, I do now, but nope. You know, what am I going to do? Go spend time with her? We're competing. We're trying to get the same clients. You know, if you're two traders, you're competing. If you're two investment bankers, you're competing. So there just wasn't a sense of we're in this together. I just didn't know them. I mean, there's one point in time when the three senior women on Wall Street were Sally, Zoe, Aaron, Sally, Zoe. Everybody thought I was best friends. I've never seen them in my life. I know them now. But then on the West Coast, I think, again, because of pattern recognition, um, it's helpful for each of us if the others of us are successful, that I have a much better chance of going into XYZ venture capital firm that has funded six other women in the past six weeks or three other women in fintech where they've made money than I am to be the first one in. I mean, it's infinitely easier, right? To convince people who've already been convinced. So I see more natural collaboration there and a real energy around helping each other. That's great. And it's funny, I've never thought about why the East Coast mentality or being in corporate in the corporate world, I didn't have a lot of women mentors. I had amazing men around me when I was in investment banking, which was great, but I never understood why there wasn't more women supporting each other. And to your point, being in the startup world, now running my own business, it's a completely different culture. So hopefully things are changing for the better. Because like you said, you know, when we all succeed, it only benefits each other. It's not like one versus the other. There's enough to go around for everybody. So well, the economy can grow. I mean, that's the false choice we always seem to have 
is if she wins, he loses. Maybe on a relative basis, but on an absolute basis, people can all be better off. Exactly. I'm so glad you brought that up. So one thing I want to get your perspective on, for anyone listening, like you mentioned earlier, sometimes women think investing is more complicated than it really is. So there's so much to dig into here, but I'd love to get your perspective on general first steps. And I know you talk about the 50-30-20 rule, but I'd love for you to share more about that. Well, so it's just not that hard. I mean, it might not be easy to do, but all the jargon, all the screaming, all of the complexity, just sweep it away. And let's start with investing, right? We're investing, we think of the traders on the New York Stock Exchange floor, throwing a piece of paper at each other, buying this, selling this, watching this on TV, gathering this information. Those are called active managers. And what they're trying to do in all that trading is get that slight advantage versus the market so that they can outperform, right? And they need to do that because they're charging fees for the service. So they need to outperform in order to cover the fee. But the bet they're making and the bet you make as an individual investor, if you're trading individual stocks or even classes of stocks, like we should sell the hotel stocks, the bet you're making is that you see something or intuit something that the market hasn't figured out. Now, the market is an inanimate object, but it is the sum total of the assessment of the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of portfolio managers, traders, analysts, you name it, who spend their full-time lives figuring out whether these things are properly valued. And by the way, I went to business school. That's all they're doing all the time, been doing it for decades. There are a zillion of them. And you are going to waltz in here and be like, you know, I really feel like when things recover, that XYZ corner shop that trades publicly is going to do well. There's just no way. And in fact, the percent of professional, professional active managers who consistently outperform on a five-year basis is 0.2%. Wow. It's almost nothing. Okay. So investing straightforward, which is do not do all that trading. Put your money in a diversified investment portfolio, a broad range of stocks, a broad range of bonds. It's what we do at Elevest. Make a deposit, put a bit out of every paycheck. And historically, you would have outperformed by doing this, the vast majority of the market, as we just said. And over a 15-year period, if you'd invested on any day since the 1920s, but you kept your money in for 15 years because we want to be long-term, you had a 99% chance of a positive return. If you invested a bit out of every paycheck, it was 100%. So investing is not as scary and historically has not been as volatile as you remember. You know, we tend to think of the market as bouncing up and down, up and down, up and down. It historically has moved upward, but with volatility around it. Okay. So investing along with owning real estate have been the two drivers of generational wealth in our country. And investing, the stock market has had a nine and a half percent average annual return since the 1920s. Real estate's been about three. So if you had a choice between just a pure investment choice between the two, you would invest. And I know that's it. And I know people want to make it more complicated. A few other things. Whoever you invest with, you want them to be a fiduciary. Put your interest ahead of their own, like Elevest is. You want the fees to be low, as we do at Elevest. You'll want to make sure the asset allocation is correct. Do you have the right amount of stocks? More if you're younger, less if you're older. And do you rebalance over time when it goes out of whack? That's it. All right. Back to yours. Let's have a few other rules. First rule is of your take-home pay. You should shoot 
for 50% going to needs, 30% to fun, and 20% to future you, things that help you out in the future. It helps to name her so that she'll take care of her. My future you is named Esther because that was my grandmother's name. I got to take care of Esther. How do I do that? Well, you start with, if you have credit card debt outstanding, out of that 20%, pay that down. If you need an emergency fund, three to six months of take-home pay comes out of that 20%. Invest in your 401k comes out of that 20%. Invest with an LVS or someone else comes out of the 20%. I know some of you are like, what? 20%? I just graduated. Everything's going to the apartment. I get it. I get it. You know, And so these things shift over time. You do the best you can do when you're younger. Try to start investing a little bit, just a little bit to make it a habit. And then as you get older and the kids are gone, you know, you can put more into savings and so on. But those are just rules of thumb over the course of a life. And I think that's really powerful because I talk a lot about money on these podcasts and I get so many questions about women saying, I don't make that much money. How do I think about investing? And I think just your criteria starting out, even if you are just making ends meet, like you said, I think it's a habit in terms of saving. It's a habit. You know, it's It's just putting in a little bit. And I started investing very small amounts when I started working. And then as I progressed in my career, I look back 10 years later, I'm now using that money to fund my business, right? It's doubled in 10 years and I didn't even think about it. So you never know when that can come in handy just by parking a little bit year over year. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Well, and make it so if you start and you're nervous about it, which is understandable, do with some amount of money that, you know, if you lose it, it's not going to change your life. And then watch it for a while and say, okay, I heard the Dow was down a hundred points today. Let me go look and see. Oh, look, it's not that bad. Oh, okay. That's fine. But same, you know, when my kids were born, funded both of them for college, 529 plans. And damn it, if it didn't pay for their college, like I put in some amount of money and then they grew up and I was like, oh, let me go check that. And I'm like, well, hello. I know you forget it's there sometimes. So I know it's a good thing. I know it is. It is for sure. And I want to be mindful of our time together and touch on two more things. You've mentioned that women having it all right. And work-life balance just drives you bananas, right? You have two older kids now and have many successful careers. So I'd love to hear your perspective because we have so many people listening who have young kids and are career women. Yeah. So this sort of, I have so many feelings about this and it sort of depends on the day and the hour as to which feeling it is. So one feeling is, okay, let me get this straight. I have to work harder at work and be better at work in order to get the same position as men. Once I'm there and I make it, I'm supposed to have work-life balance. What? (laughs) Right? So I have to work harder. Then I have to work-life balance. And by the way, I have to do this while doing much more of the housework and much more of the childcare. So I'm working two-time job, but somehow it's supposed to be balanced between the two. So how much higher are we going to raise this bar? And I'll never forget being CF, Chief Financial Officer of City, and being on a panel with all male chief financial officers of other big companies. And of course, I was the only one who got the poor life balance question. And so you just feel like it isn't enough that I'm the CFO. Now we're going to pick through this. And it's held against us. You know, I remember same time, CFO of City, a banker, one of our investment bankers called me and said, oh, are you Kitty's mom at XYZ school? I'm like, yes, I am waiting to hear a compliment. He's like, oh, I heard you weren't at the paperback book fair. And I remember, I know, I remember going home and saying to my husband, I went to the effing hardback book fair, Yeah, but I'm getting the, if I had been a male CFO of the company he worked at, what do you said to the males you weren't at the paperback book fair? So that's number one. But the other thing I think we have to recognize is that it is a construct of privilege that 
as we talk about work-life balance and achieving it, that we're privileged to even have the ability to shoot for it. You know, that we have so many of our sisters who are working two and three shifts in order to make ends meet, that so many of them have lost their jobs. And so I just think we have to be aware as we are talking about that, that it does come from a position of privilege and remember that. So I don't know. I have a lot of emotions around it. And look, I also have been clear. There were periods of time in my life where I was striving for excellence at work and I wasn't exactly striving for excellence at home. Those bedroom floors were not as spick and span as (laughs) they could have been if I'd (laughs) decided to mop them. Totally. And I'm curious, you know, your partner, how supportive has he been in your career and also helping you at home with the kids? The answer is great. The answer is great. And I do sort of hate it that, again, we have to have this question because it's not something men are talking about. Like, how supportive was your wife? Like, nobody asked that question, but we are still where we are. My first husband was not. He was definitely an eye roller if I would get home late. We didn't have cell phones back when he and I first were married. There was a lot of eye rolling and that tension just was too much. But my husband has been terrific. I mean, would I prefer if he cooked dinner? I would prefer it. But you know, every trip I went on, he never was like, you're not going away again. It was, yeah, that's just what we do. That's the family we are. So he's great. That's awesome. And it's so funny because you're right. No one asks men that specific question. And you're right. I've never even thought about it like that. But every woman we have had on the podcast, all their partners have been so supportive. And I think that just makes your life so much easier. I have so many friends who are so career oriented. And anytime they're with not the right partner, they start questioning themselves and their ambition. So I just hate seeing women in that situation. So I love this is the problem. This is the problem, right? We're operating on such a knife edge. Are you in the workplace? You got to work harder than everybody else, but don't intimidate people. You have to be firm, but don't be a bitch. You have to be warm, but don't remind me of my mom or then that doesn't work. We then need to have a partner at home who supports us. Otherwise that doesn't work. Right. And so then we go into the pandemic and all that's balanced. And then we recognize, and I think the words from last year that will stay with me forever are Jessica Kalarko, sociologist who said other countries have social safety nets. The U S has women. And so I know, wow. Right. Yeah. Wow. And even with all that, it was women who took on the burden losing jobs disproportionately, losing promotions disproportionately, losing productivity disproportionately. And you sit back and you say, we just built this on a very fragile foundation for a woman's success. As you've just said, 100% of the women I've had a supportive partner. Okay. Well, that tells me that that is a necessary but not sufficient condition for her to be successful. Holy shoot. We have to have a supportive partner, right? Yeah. Darn it. I know. Yeah. Or at least a supportive community, right? Which a lot of people struggle with too. That's right. And to go on, we have message to women that if it doesn't work, it's their fault. Not, you know what? Social safety net isn't there. It's you should have worked harder. You should have done this differently. You should have asked for the raise this way. You should have raised money that way. And we never really say, you know what? The thing is just so damn stacked against you that if you're only going to get 2% of venture dollars, And only if you're a certain kind of woman and only if your partner this and only if we don't have a pandemic, right? What we force women to go through is just a joke. Yeah. And there's 
so much that we can talk about there, but I'm even glad that we're having these conversations to even talk about it. So mm-hmm. women know that they're not alone and hopefully things are changing for the better in time. But And that's also why I talk about getting fired because in the circumstances are different from not getting a raise done or whatever. But we've also been socialized that we're supposed to get A's, we're supposed to be perfect, we're supposed to be effortless, right? All that's supposed to just sort of beautifully happen. And I think it's important that we not only talk about the issues, but that we talk about the failures. And just because of how life is in the deck stack, we're all going to fail and you just got to get back up and not let it bother you. I love that. I know you've talked a lot about just normalizing failures and life is tough as it is. And especially if you're a startup founder, it's freaking tough as you were mentioning. So we're all bound to fail and we just have to understand that's part of the course and the only way you can really be successful. And at least you're going for it versus not and staying safe. So well, that's right. And you know what? That's finally what got me to be an entrepreneur is when I saw the research that says that people on their deathbeds don't regret what they did, they regret what they didn't do. And that had I not founded Elevest, knowing it is a means to solve women's biggest problems that no one else had figured out yet. And I had said, you know, I'm not going to do that. Then I would have been on my deathbed thinking that I've been given all these gifts in my privilege and my experience, and that I didn't then take them back and sort of share them would have been a life not well lived. Yeah. And I'm curious from your perspective, why do you think men do a better job just taking more risks and thinking big and going for it versus women? Well, because they've been socialized to, right? I mean, the football, basketball, right? The hero, the winner, be the CEO. Come on. You know, they're on the sports teams. They celebrate winning. They understand that when they lose, they're going to play again next Saturday and they have another chance to win. And they've just been socialized. And when they see their friends who this company didn't work, but they raised money for another one and this one and so on, So whereas we've been socialized to be more perfect and get an A and be careful, it's just support. And so we need to support each other, Yeah. right? This is where we need to step in. And that's why part of what we do at Elevest is we have the opportunity for you to invest in companies that advance women. Mm -hmm. And we also have just rolled out a new program, which is the Women-Led Collection Cashback Program, where you can spend money on your Elevest debit card. We'll tell you which are the women-owned businesses and you get cash back for shopping them. 90% of women say if they knew who women-owned businesses were, they would shop them. So we're trying to give them the guides to do that. I love that. I actually just saw you guys roll that out and I love the initiative and so many Mm -hmm. awesome women founders that you're working with. So we'll definitely put for everyone listening, all these details in the show notes. And I want to close on one last question. We love to ask all of our guests and we've talked about this throughout the interview, but would love to get your thoughts. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. For you personally, at this point in your life, what does wealth mean to you? I mean, it's the ability to live the life that you want to, which for me has meant, believe me, not taking a salary for the past goodness knows how many years in order to try to build this and to have the ability to make choices that you can't make if you don't have the money. So I love to say nothing bad ever happened when women have more money. Can't think of a thing that we're all better off when we have those degrees of freedom that you would say wealth, I would say money provide for us. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, thank you, Sally, for joining us today. I could talk to you for many days. It's such an honor to have you on and I so appreciate you joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. Take care. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.